we just sang some, some very powerful words. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. There's a way I think that songs can get to us that perhaps just normal readings or, or even preaching might not be able to do. It communicate in a very strong and powerful way. And we're going to look at a woman today in the Gospel of Luke who had been suffering for 18 long years. And even though she didn't know this song, I bet that if she could hear it, she would resonate very much with it. But songs are powerful, and some of you who've been with Mercy Hill for a while know that I'm a fan of U2. Not only do I appreciate a lot of their music, but I've been interested to see how their front singer, Bono, navigates life and celebrity and popularity as a professed follower of Jesus Christ. And for those who have ears to hear, you can see echoes of the gospel woven throughout his music. For example, there's this song that came out in 2007 called Window in the Skies, and it was nominated for one of the most popular songs that year, but I find that many people have not even heard of it. And it has this interesting passage in this song. He sings, the rule has been disproved, the stone it has been moved, the grave is now a groove, all debts are removed, oh can't you see what love has done. Here he's singing about the good news of Jesus, the resurrection, the death, the love that has accomplished great things for people like you and me. And today we're going to take that question that he asked and use it as a title because we're going to see this woman who had a disability for 18 long years and we're going to see what Jesus does about this. He's on his way down to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to give his life. And he stops in this town, and as many visiting teachers get the opportunity to do, he taught in the local synagogue. And as Jesus encounters this woman, he does something incredible, something miraculous. And she rejoices at what love has done for her. But not everybody we see was very happy about what Jesus did. And so we're going to look at this episode, and we're going to see what Jesus did, what love has done, and we're going to seek to apply it to our understanding of, of brokenness in our own world, the hope of the gospel for the renewal of all things. And so we're going to head that direction. So my friends, whether you are new to Christianity or you've been following Jesus for a long time, each and every one of us is going to be asked essentially this question, can't you see what love has done? So as we get ready to jump into this text, let's pause for just a moment and pray. Lord, we ask that at this moment that you would help us to understand this ancient biography of Jesus. As we encounter maybe a situation that's unfamiliar to us and provokes a lot of questions, would you open our eyes to see and unstop our ears to hear and open our heart to, to, to lay hold of and, and to receive and, and to bring into our very being this good news of who Jesus is and what his purposes are for the redemption of this world. So meet us this day, whether we come in here skeptical and jaded, whether we come in here this day looking for a ray of hope, or whether we come in here just pumped about the gospel and a sense of closeness to you. Would you meet us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So here's how the text begins. In Luke chapter 13, verse 10, the ancient physician 
writes these words. Now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So let's just pause for a moment and make sure that we're, we're getting all the resonances we're supposed to get. Synagogues were kind of precursors to the church. There were local assemblies of Jewish believers who would gather together in various towns because they couldn't go to Jerusalem every weekend to worship at the, the headquarters of the worship of God's people. So they would gather together on what was called the Lord's Day, a day of rest, the Sabbath, and they would hear the scriptures being taught. They would sing songs, and they would be encouraged. And so Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, stops at the synagogue. He's invited to teach on the Sabbath. And Luke highlights this day of the Sabbath because it's going to be mentioned multiple times in this passage. If you're not familiar with the Sabbath, what you need to know is this, this was a, a holy day in the week of God's people. And it marked their liberation from slavery, where they had to work nonstop, 24-7, 365 days a, week, a year, without a break. And so when God rescued his people from slavery, he gave them one day a week, which was essentially a day of rest to remember the salvation that he has brought Tomorrow we, as a nation, celebrate Labor Day. Some of you don't have to work, and some of you do. But this was kind of a Labor Day in the day of Israel where they didn't work, but they remembered what they had accomplished the previous week and especially rested in God's goodness to them. So this is what's going on. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now we're told that she had a disabling spirit. Some translations say a spirit of weakness. We're going to answer the question of what that is in just a moment because not only is Luke, but Jesus is going to tell us exactly what's going on here. But first just grasp that she had this condition for 18 years. And we're told that she was bent over and she could not fully straighten herself. Now, we're tempted just to run over these words and go, okay, 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 and go on to see what happens next. But let's just pause for a second and imagine what it must have been like for this woman. For 18 years, she was disabled. She had a, a crippling spirit. We're not told exactly what that spirit was, but, but something had happened to her. And people probably thought, because a lot of people did it that day, that if something bad happens to someone, it's because they have done something bad. Now, they may not say that to her face, but, but they might be wondering it. And we're not told how old she was here, but for 18 years, bent over, suffering from this disability, not able to, to stand up straight. I mean, just get picture in your mind someone who is bent over and cannot straighten themselves. And we don't know how old she was, but she must have felt very old. Her body's broken. She can't do anything with ease. She can't even look people straight in the face. I wonder how many times she prayed for healing and it never came. I wonder how people treated her as they saw her condition and it made them uncomfortable. Well, whatever the case is, with great dis disability and great difficulty, she nevertheless makes herself or takes herself to the place of worship. She wants to be around God's people. And we don't know if she knew that Jesus was going to be there that day, but she's going to encounter him. We're told in verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over. Now, 
One commentator said, this is vintage Jesus. Over and over in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus sees people. He looks at them in ways that perhaps they hadn't been really looked at before. And here's a woman, and Jesus calls her over. And I was stopping to ask myself the question, why did he call her over to him instead of him going over to where she was? And I wonder if it's because as, as a teacher, he would be sitting at the front. There'd be a group of men, and the women would be in the back. And he saw her, and he brings her forward because he wants to, to show everyone who's there, bringing her front and center, what he intends to do with this woman and to this woman and for this woman. So imagine her hobbling up, bent over to the front. All eyes are on her. All eyes are on Jesus. What's he going to do? His disciples, those who've been around him, have seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things so far, miraculous things even. And I wonder if excitement is stirring within them as they're wondering, is he going to do it again? So she hobbles forward, and Jesus says to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Note the compassion of Jesus. And what might have been something of a humiliating situation for this woman to be called forward, he lays his hands on her, tells her, woman, you are freed, and immediately energy flows through her body. Atrophied muscles reform and strengthen. And for the first time in a very long time, she stands up straight. Can you imagine the excitement she must have felt? Can you imagine the sense of dignity being restored to her in this moment? Can you understand why all of a sudden she's glorifying God? What an amazing thing Jesus did here, and it seems like the easiest thing in the world for him to do. He just simply says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. She's glorifying God. She's probably making a scene. People are probably are are trying to put two and two together and understand, what does this mean? Who is this man who can do something like this? But not everyone was happy. In fact, we're told in verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine how shocking this must have been? Jesus just performed this miracle. This woman is dignified and whole. She's rejoicing. And this synagogue ruler, sensing the need to get control back over the situation that obviously he didn't anticipate happening, stands up and just says to everyone, and especially to this woman, and as I think about this, you have to just imagine almost like a haughty voice. How could this not be just a stereotypical, self-righteous thing to say? There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Luke tells us he is indignant. Why? 
What's going on in his heart? What's, what's going on in his thinking? That this is his reaction to seeing this woman made whole. I mean, this would be comical if it wasn't so tragic and callous. Let's pause here and just make a key thought. You can be so attached to your interpretation of reality that you completely miss Jesus. It's astounding. This man who was in charge of leading people into the ways of God could not rejoice because his view of reality, his interpretation of reality blinded him and hardened him. You can be so prejudiced against Jesus that you cannot see what love has done. Luke tells us this next. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Jesus answers this man. There's a confrontation going on here. And he says in the plural, you hypocrites. He probably sees the scowls of the other religious leaders who are self-righteous in their indignation at what Jesus did and gave approval to what that synagogue ruler said about not coming on the Sabbath day to be healed. You hypocrites, don't you untie your animals and lead them to water on the Sabbath. And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. That man said, you ought to work on six days and rest on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, should not I work on the Sabbath and bring liberation to this woman? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. So I was thinking through this, I was thinking about the story of righteous Job. If you don't know the story of righteous Job, he was this character in the scriptures who was a righteous man. And all of a sudden, calamity after calamity after calamity struck him and his family. He lost members of his family that he loved. And he was afflicted with sores over his body. He would take broken pieces of pottery and scrape them away. And he wanted to die. In fact, his, his wife encouraged him in the midst of his suffering to die. To curse God. To die. But we're told that Job suffered righteously. And we're given the backstory that these afflictions happened because of, of someone called Satan. The evil one. And someone... <laughs> read responds by saying, come on, man. You can't seriously expect us to take this seriously. I mean, we live in the 21st century. We live in an educated town. We don't believe in these kind of superstitious, primitive ways of understanding the world. And let me just say, if you wrestle with that, I want you to know that you will learn that as you begin to follow Jesus, he's going to ask you to sophisticate uh, all kinds of things. To sophisticate your understanding of all kinds of things. Like God, yourself, and evil. And so if you struggle with believing in the personal presence of evil incarnated in, in a being called Satan, what you need to know is that just like God created a human family and designed them for flourishing, he also created an, an angelic family as well. 
And just like the human family has rebelled against God, so these angelic beings have as well. And we're told that Satan is, is the prince of evil, the prince of this fallen world. That prince title was originally given to Adam, to his bride Eve, and in their rebellion, they followed the evil one into rebellion. And so Jesus, with probably greater insight than all of us put together, wants us to know that this woman suffered because of an affliction by an evil entity named Satan. Now it's interesting, it doesn't say that she, he, she was possessed, but she was oppressed. And so in Jesus' mind, this woman who has been oppressed for these long years should especially be liberated on the Sabbath day, a day of God's people rejoicing in salvation, of liberation, of healing, in anticipation of this world being made whole. And Luke tells us in verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. I don't know how big this crowd was, Remember, there were people who were traveling with Jesus to Galilee. And wherever he went, crowds came together. So I imagine there were people outside even who were listening in on what was going on, who saw what was going on. And Luke just gives us this parenthetical statement that all his adversaries, those who opposed Jesus in this moment, were exposed. They were ashamed. And all the people who saw this glorious miracle happening to this woman rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So let's just stop and ask ourselves the question, why does Luke want us to know about this? Luke is writing to tell us about Jesus. Luke himself was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, a co-minister with him. He learned about Jesus, perhaps even met him at one time, but we're told at the beginning of his gospel that he researched the life of Jesus interviewing not only the apostles, but interviewing people who had encountered him. And he put together this gospel account, and he wants us to know about this woman but he, because he's keen to persuade us to follow Jesus. And so Luke wants us to know that Jesus is not just some kind of religious teacher. He's not some kind of guru or, or life coach that just has a few points of interest that we might want to add to our life if we find them applicable. He's given us a picture of the identity of who Jesus is. In this passage, he describes him as the Lord, a phrase used to describe God himself in the Old Testament. And so Luke, in writing this gospel, is giving us a continuing story of the people of God who are anticipating God coming to them and bringing wholeness and restoration. So Luke wants us to put the, the pieces of the puzzle together and to see that Jesus is God coming to us in the flesh to bring healing, to bring wholeness, and to bring salvation. So if I can put it succinctly and bottom line it for us, it would go something like this. What the enemy has crippled by his cruelty, Jesus the King will cure by his compassion. I'm borrowing this wording from Philip Ryken in his commentary on this passage. What the enemy has crippled by his cruelty, Jesus the King will cure by his compassion. We saw an instance of it here. And we're going to see in just a moment that writ large for this universe. So, before we get to a couple points of application, let me just pause and say this story invites us to see ourselves in the characters here. Are we like this disabled woman, desperately in need of the healing touch of Jesus? 
Or are we like this disabled ruler who cannot see what love has done? This woman was broken, no doubt. And you may not have a disability. I know that we do have disabilities in our church. I know this comes home for many people. But all of us are broken. None of us are whole. The way the Apostle Paul talked about it, outwardly we are wasting away. I felt like I peaked when I was 18 years old. I remember playing baseball growing up and never having a sore arm. And I remember that one day coming home from practice and all of a sudden feeling my wing's not working quite like it used to. I've had a couple surgeries, four or five, I think, throughout my life to fix broken things. But you may not have had that. You may not be physically disabled. But can you see that we are all disabled? This ruler himself was disabled. In his self-righteousness, he could not see love standing in front of him. He could not see what love had just done for this woman. And he could not see the implications of who Jesus was for his own life. There's another music group I listened to named Switchfoot. They had this hit a long time ago called Meant to Live. And they sing in, they sing in this song, Maybe we've been living with our eyes half open. Maybe we're bent and broken. This group's not a Christian group, but these men who sing in this are, are all Christians. And we hear echoes of the scriptures and their music over and over again. And they just raise this question for their listeners to consider. Maybe we are all bent and broken. I wonder if you can admit that to yourself this day. Couple points of application. First one is this. This should be the obvious one right out the gate. Let's marvel at a Savior like Jesus. This woman glorified God because of what Jesus has done. We're told in this passage that the people rejoiced at what Jesus had done. And we're meant to see that echo in our own lives as well. Just think about what Jesus has done for people like you and me. He allowed Himself to be victimized by the satanic conspiracy of the religious leaders and the cruelty of the Roman Empire by having himself handed over, brutally tortured, and crucified. And it was here on the cross when Jesus allowed evil to take its biggest swing at him. In fact, to take him out. Because it's here, as we mentioned earlier in the service, in this moment where Jesus laid himself wide open to evil, that the evil of people like you and me were placed upon him. And Jesus, in satisfying the just demands of what righteousness and justice would issue for rebels like us, Jesus took in that moment. But that's not the end of the story. As we're told, three days later, he rose again from the dead. The rule has been disproved. The stone it has been moved. The grave is now a groove. All debts are removed. Oh, can't you see what love has done? The Apostle Paul reminded his readers of that day when Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints. He comes to be marveled at among all who have believed. Do you look forward to that day, my friends, when Jesus returns 
that he might be glorified in your life to the utter extreme, that you might be able to look upon him with your own eyes and marvel at what love has done. We sang that song a while ago. And with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. It will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. My friends, does that resonate in your heart? Let me encourage you to fan that into flame and long for that day when you can see him face to face and marvel at his wonderful love for you. So our first point of application is let's marvel at the person of Jesus. But here's the second one. Let's long for the renewal of all things. What do I mean by that? What Jesus did for this woman in microcosm, he will one day do for this world, for this universe in macrocosm. As we read the stories in the Gospels, let's remember to locate ourselves in the story. This isn't just an interesting thing that Jesus did. It has meaning. God created this world to be his kingdom. And that rebellion happened where our first parents turned their backs upon God and we follow in their wake every single day. But all of history is headed toward that day where God restores and redeems this world. And so what we see happening in miniature in this woman's life, Jesus will one day do in macro to this entire world. In fact, the way Jesus put it like this, he says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Jesus believed that one day he would be sitting on the throne of this universe next to his heavenly Father. And that would be the day of the renewal of all things. When he comes with healing in his hands, just like he placed his hands on this woman, he'll place his hands, so to speak, on this world, and it will be made whole. In fact, if we were to geek out on that Greek for just a moment, that phrase, the renewal of all things, translates a Greek word that basically means Genesis again. The beginning again. And so various translations of the, the scriptures Try to get at this angle. One says, in the regeneration. Another says, in the new creation. Another, in the new world. Or when the world is made new. In the recreation of the world. Or as the NIV says, the renewal of all things. Jesus is getting at that day when the restoration of all things will come. And the Apostle Paul spoke of that day as well in his magnum opus, the book of Romans. And he said this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let me pause for just a second. I was wondering how Paul might speak these words to people who feel themselves broken, who in spite of many years perhaps of unanswered prayer, struggle to believe that God is for them and, and that one day he will restore this world. Paul says to people like that, to people like you and me, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits, he says, in eager expectation 
for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Just like that woman was set free by Jesus and liberated from what disabled her, we're told that one day creation itself will be liberated as well. Paul continues, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of our sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that all of us are part of a broken and bent world. And this world, in a very real sense, is groaning at its brokenness and its longing for its own redemption. And it will happen on the day when you and I, because of what Jesus has done for us, will receive the redemption of our bodies. Banish from your minds the thought that we're going to be disembodied spirits sitting on clouds playing harps for all eternity. That's not the story of the scriptures. Yes, when we die, right now our body and soul are separated. But what God has separated, he intends to bring back together. And the scriptures tell us that we will be on a glorified world as human beings, embodied creatures, having been redeemed from the curse that's upon this world. And so Paul says, in this hope we are saved. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. My friends, when people have lived into this truth about what Jesus intends to do for this world on macro, it changes the way we think about everything. I'll never forget the first time I saw a picture of this tombstone. It's a picture of a boy, his name is Matthew, who had been obviously disabled, bound to a wheelchair. And his broken body succumbed to the brokenness of this world. But his family, in the hope of that day of resurrection, knows that little Matthew is going to be redeemed and resurrected. That death doesn't have the final say. That disability doesn't have the final say. And that he will be liberated. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 put it like this. He said to Christians living in Philippi, But our citizenship is in in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. My friends, Jesus, right now, sits on the throne of heaven in a glorified human body. Human flesh sits on the throne of heaven. And just like his body, disabled by the Roman cruelty of crucifixion, was brought back to life and glorified, so our bodies, however bent and broken, however much bent and brokenness of our soul there is, 
will one day be whole and restored. Jesus himself will see to it. He will transform your broken and bent body and soul to be just like his. What an amazing truth. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the New Testament called The Message, put it. Summarizing Paul here, he says, We're citizens of high heaven. We're awaiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be under and around him. And just like he, in that day some 2,000 years ago, by his powerful skill, made everything right in that woman's body. So too, he will do that for us. Some of you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. She is a woman who, had, I think it was age 16, had a diving accident and has spent 54 years as a quadriplegic in a chair, a wheelchair. And she said, not too long ago, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. What a beautiful picture. She's asked many times, I've, I've heard, she's been asked, what are you going to do when you receive your glorified body? And what a beautiful description. When I get glorified legs, when I can walk again, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to fall on grateful, glorified knees and worship Jesus. So my friends, let's marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's Deepen our longing for that day when he sets this world to right. And here's maybe one more point of application. Let's live out the compassion of Jesus. I don't know if you have the gift of healing. I don't. But that doesn't stop us from having compassion like Jesus did. We see over and over in the Gospels, Jesus being moved to compassion. Sometimes it looked like healing people. Sometimes it looked like eating with the down and out, the misfits and the outcasts, the people that this world had written off. And I wonder if just like Jesus saw the brokenness of this woman, could we have our eyes open to see the brokenness of our world? Those on the margins, those who are hurting, and with that same heart of Jesus, move toward them in compassion. We're told by Peter in the book of Acts that God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I mentioned to you, my friends, that I don't have the gift of healing. I've known some people who, who, who do. But all of us because God is with us, can go about doing good. And even if we don't have the gift of healing, we can ask God to heal people. And even if he doesn't in that moment, maybe if he asks this person to wait a little longer, those prayers of encouragement mean something huge. And so when we have opportunity, let's, let's exhibit that compassion of Jesus. Let's not avert our eyes from things that make us uncomfortable. Let's not shrink back from from those places of brokenness in our culture, in our society, in our own city, that we can move towards in compassion. A couple weeks ago, I was having a breakfast with my friend, Monty. Monty is the uh, founder and the organizer of the Brazos Food Pantry, and he was talking to me some about the, the great need in this community. 
And he asked me the question. He's like, John, are you guys at Mercy Hill Church ready to open your own food kitchen? <laughs> and I had to smile and told him, I said, not yet. He says, when you're ready, I want to help you because the need is, is so great. And I said to him, well, we don't have our own building yet, but what we'll do in the meantime is keep sending people over to you. We'll keep sending people over during the week to, to help stock that kitchen and organize and get it ready for distribution on Thursday nights. And one of the great privileges of my life is to join over there and to see those who are at the end of the rope receive hope by just a, a compassionate act of the gift of food with a Bible and to be able to ask the Lord to bless them as they drive away. And as I thought about Monty, who himself would admit that he's getting up there in years, many people wouldn't fault him if he just kind of rode off into the sunset and enjoyed his entire retirement. But he's moved with compassion and with the compassion of Jesus. And as I left this day, I didn't have the song in my head but I was thinking about how Jesus had so impacted Monty. That the love of Jesus so overflowed his life that it was overflowing into the lives of people around him. And, and I thought this morning, I wonder if this question could be asked of you and me. As people see us move into the brokenness of this world with the compassion of Jesus, might they not say in so many words, can't you see what love has done in our lives, in your life. Bono, once again from that song, sings to every broken heart, for every heart that cares, love left a window in the skies, and to love I rhapsodize. Here he's speaking of that great act of Jesus that opened the way of heaven for all of us. And so he sings out to anyone who would care, anyone who has a broken heart, who experiences the brokenness of this world. Love has opened a window to the skies, and to this love he loves to rhapsodize. And the song trails off like this. Oh, can't you see what love has done? Oh, can't you see what love has done? Oh, can't you see what love has done and what it's doing to me? My friends, is that love of Jesus that we, that we love to talk about here and read about some 2,000 years ago, is it doing anything to you? Is it doing anything for you? Is it doing anything through you? May we be able to say to this world, to any who would care, to all those who are broken, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ opened the way to heaven and his kingdom is coming. And this world will be healed. And all who trust in him will find themselves on that day, not only marveling at Jesus, not only seeing the desire for the renewal of all things take place, but to experience the compassion of Jesus on a deeper level than ever before. And so my friends, Mercy Hill Church, may you be a people whose eyes are opened to see what the love of Jesus has done and to rejoice at what it's doing in you to you and through you as you seek to follow Jesus into the bent and broken places of this world.